This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family by Sophie Lewis. The surrogacy industry is worth over $1 billion a year, and many of its surrogates work in terrible conditions, while many gestate babies for no pay at all. Should it be illegal to pay someone to gestate a baby for you? Full Surrogacy Now brings a fresh and unique perspective to the debate. Rather than making surrogacy illegal or allowing it to continue as is, Sophie Lewis argues we should be looking to radically transform it. Surrogates should be put front and center, and their rights toward the babies they gestate should be expanded to acknowledge that surrogates are more than mere vessels. In doing so, we break down our assumptions that children necessarily belong to those whose genetics they share. This might sound like a radical proposal, but expanding our idea of who children belong to would be a good thing. Taking collective responsibility for children, rather than only caring for the ones we share DNA with, would radically transform notions of kinship. Adopting this expanded concept of surrogacy helps us see that it always, as the saying goes, takes a village to raise a child. Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, by Sophie Lewis, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. British politics are tremendously exciting, maddeningly boring, and deeply worrying. Exciting in that the Labour Party is now under Jeremy Corbyn's left-wing leadership and has a plausible and radical plan to transform the United Kingdom so that it is run by and works for the many and not the few. Boring because the country has been dominated by an interminable Brexit debate, the most Groundhog Day-like political event I've observed in my life. And then also worrying because Brexit has so dominated UK politics that it has put the Labour Party in a profoundly difficult and perhaps untenable position of strategic ambiguity toward how to handle the never-ending matter of leaving the EU. Today, I'm discussing this all with Grace Blakely, Maya Goodfellow, and Richard Seymour. There is, I think, a special relationship of sorts between the socialist Berniecrat project here in the U.S. and Corbynism in the U.K. In part, that's because a shared tongue facilitates easy communication and consumption of each other's media. But I think the transatlantic bonds also reflect the flip side of interconnected systems of domination. The ties that bind wealthy and powerful Anglophone nations connected at the root by settler colonialism, and that for a long time since have served as partners in neoliberalism and empire. And so a left government in either, or preferably both, would represent a serious challenge within the belly of the beast. 
And so despite the present and serious complications posed by Brexit and the very underwhelming European election results, the Labour Party no doubt remains the most inspiring left political force in Europe and one of the most important worldwide. Anyhow, this is our second of five episodes on European politics that I somewhat impulsively planned last week as I found myself a bit dejected and confused by the EU elections. The last episode, the first one of the series, was an overview of the situation with Chris Bickerton and Jerome Rose. Coming up in the next episode is French politics with Sebastian Budgen and Danielle Obano. Then, an interview on Spanish politics with Carlos Del Clos and Magda Mandera. And finally, an interview with David Broder and Marta Fana on Italy. Before we get rolling, your support at patreon.com slash the dig is what allows me to suddenly spend a ton of time scheduling, researching, and conducting five in-depth interviews about European politics on a whim. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity, or Feminism for the 99% by Nancy Fraser, Cynthia Rutza, and Tithi Bhattacharya. Donations of $20 or more gets you a box of left-wing books. Those of you who started supporting us a long time ago allowed me to make this show my full-time job and to pay my producer and for a ton of other costs. Those of you who start contributing now are, first of all, ensuring this podcast's long-term survival, and you're also allowing me to do cool stuff like building our new website, thedigradio.com, which has all of our episodes, the entire archive, searchable by guest and by topic, and, coming soon, transcripts of the episodes. So, please contribute now, if you haven't already, at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Grace Blakely, Maya Goodfellow, and Richard Seymour. Grace Blakely is an economics commentator at The New Statesman, the author of Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, out later this year from Repeater Books, and a Labour Party National Policy Forum representative from London. Maya Goodfellow is an academic and writer and the author of Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, out later this year from Verso. Richard Seymour is an editor of Salvage magazine and, most recently, the author of The Twittering Machine, forthcoming this year from the Indigo Press. Grace Blakely and Maya Goodfellow, welcome to The Dig, and Richard Seymour, welcome back. Thanks for having us. Yeah, hi. Hi. We should start with the fact that Labor just did absolutely terribly, which, whatever the significance of the EU elections, and I want to hear what you think the significance is, it's horrible news. As Ronan Burdenshaw writes at the Tribune, quote, 14% is the party's worst performance on a national level in more than a century. Meanwhile, the Greens and Liberal Democrats surged. But the Tories did much worse even than Labour, 
winning just 8.4% of the votes. My question is, why did labor perform so badly? And what role has the never-ending Brexit debate played in boxing Corbynism into this incredibly difficult position on Europe that divides the key parts of its social base against one another? Hi, I'm Grace Lakely. And I think like a big part of the reason that the, the two main parties did so badly was that this election was not like many other elections in that it has turned out to be a kind of proxy referendum on um, Europe. And for any, uh, you know, given um, that Brexit has become the kind of polarizing political issue in our country, um, as, you know, as the two years of negotiations has um, have progressed, then it it makes sense for a lot of voters and, you know, the 30 something percent of voters that did turn out who will be likely to have more extreme views anyway, to pick parties that will represent their probably fairly um, extreme views on this particular issue. And that means mainly voting for the Brexit Party or, say, the Liberal Democrats, which have now emerged as the kind of uh, main party of um, Remain. So I think that explains a large part of Labour's poor performance in this election, because, you know, ultimately uh, this, as I said, this kind of has to be seen as as a kind of proxy vote for um, either remaining or leaving the EU rather than a vote on a set of policies which would kind of affect people's material circumstances. And that's all the truer, given that these elections were never supposed to happen and there's basically not been a campaign. I, I also think, sorry, this is my good fellow. Uh, I also think actually there's also a, a, perhaps a longer term issue here, which is that Labour have tried to keep together this coalition of voters. They've tried to keep people on the Remain side and on the Leave side somewhat happy trying to respect the referendum result whilst not losing some of those voters who voted Remain and perhaps feel more strongly about Europe. And I think that really did result, that has been like a long-term malaise, but also that resulted in what was essentially a really lacklustre campaign. There was very, very little Labour presence during that campaign, I think. And I think that that really, if you compare that with the 2017 general election, or even just Jeremy Corbyn's initial election as Labour leader in 2015, there is a huge difference there between a very clear message about what Labour stands for and what they're going to offer, and then this message on Europe, which is very confused. And they tried to make it about domestic issues when that's not what this refer- what this vote was about. This vote was tied to what has happened with the referendum. So I think there's a longer term issue about where Labour has been on this, perhaps a necessary ambiguity, and then also them not really wanting this vote to take place. And that really showing to some extent in their campaign. I kind of don't disagree with that. But also, you know, it brings out the extent to which, you know, this was not an election that was really about policy. It was like a single issue thing. And as I said, kind of ended up being a proxy for um, the referendum. So doing the kind of thing that Labour has excelled at doing, which is really focusing on um, on policy, and you know, the, the policy platform that was proved so popular in 2017 and continues to prove particularly popular, didn't really help them. And actually, obviously, that also was exacerbated given the length of the campaign, which was really short, and there obviously wasn't a lot of a lot of time to repair. But I don't necessarily think, and you know, it, that is is all the more it was even going to be the case, even if we weren't in this particular context, because it was MEPs going into a parliament which has very little real power, um, and the decisions of which are quite unlikely to influence uh, most people's lives over the short term and even over the long term, given the kind of relationship between the European Parliament and the various other bo- other bodies of the European Union. Um, so it kind of is quite quite difficult to put together a real coherent policy offer that you can say to people, this is going to transform your lives and get them excited in the way that you can about domestic policy. 
Richard, do you, what do you think? Should we take this all with a grain of salt, given that EU votes are often protest votes that narrowly emphasize these questions about Europe? Or does the success of the Liberal Democrats and Greens, these two parties with clearly defined pro-Remain, pro-EU politics, does, does that represent a more fundamental problem for Labour? Well, it shows uh, how fragile uh, the Labour recovery actually is, I think. And that doesn't mean that this election should be taken to mean more than it does. Uh, I think Grace Blakely is right that it's very d- difficult to have a sort of class-based uh, agenda when you're talking about the European Union. What can you realistically offer people? I looked at Labour's manifesto and they were they were really trying to talk about uh, some substantive issues, but they were all issues to do with British politics, not the EU. Um but there is also um, underlying this uh, uh, two related questions, one about race and one about nation. I've seen this tendency over the last, um, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven years for various social questions to be concentrated in the form of a national question. We saw it over uh, Scottish independence and now we're seeing it over Brexit. And that makes a certain amount of sense because when you've got a crisis of representation, a crisis of parliamentary democracy, there is a sense in which the nation is supposedly the container of uh, and you know the the level at which democracy happens uh, it's that's where the demos is and so scotland uh, you know there was a big vote to uh, succeed to break away from the united kingdom largely because many scottish people are sick to death of being ruled by tories when they never vote for them so it's a democratic <laughs> issue okay so that's uh, one thing another thing to note is that um this issue, Brexit, didn't start out being the polarizing issue that it was, um, it, you know, in as much as, you know, there had been polarization during the context of the campaign, but it wasn't the most important issue to people. And in the aftermath, generally speaking, there was an acceptance that the result would have to be respected. People had different views on, you know, what uh, the actual, what the result actually meant. Um, there was tended to be a fragmentation of opinion rather than polarization. Really, what's brought us here is this dragged out, nightmarish process of constant parliamentary stalemate. One can only say uh, extreme incompetence at uh, at the top from Theresa May's office. Um, so, I mean, I think Labour's strategy has been to say, look, uh, we want to shift the debate onto something else. We want to keep our coalition together and we want to shift the debate onto class issues and issues of how we're going to modernize the, the economy um, and serve uh, the majority of working class people. But we, to do that, we need to keep our coalition together. So we, we want to try and deliver the least toxic possible Brexit and then move on. And the longer that um, this issue has been strung out, the less possible that has been. One last point about this. Uh, I mentioned race. Of course, you know, one of the things that uh, Labour could have said and it never did say was we're going to defend free movement. We're going to 100 percent defend defend immigration and defend all the rights of immigrants that they currently have. We're not going to stand for Nigel Farage's politics trying to erect new barriers and deprive people of rights that they currently have. So there's quite a lot of people in the UK who would rally to that. And we see opinion shifting over time to a more pro-immigration position. Unfortunately, Labour was hamstrung by this um, traditional attempt to triangulate with the right on this. And I I don't think this is Corbyn's instincts, but I think in the end, after about six months into the um, after the Brexit vote, he was felt compelled to come out and say, well, you know, we're not wedded to free movement. And the as we break away from the European Union, free movement is going to end. 
given that that was an object for negotiation and contention, that showed something about their priorities. It wasn't just a statement of neutral fact. Um, and I think that's a big shame and it probably lost them uh, some votes in this. The question is whether this election, surely uh, merely by virtue of the impact of the publicity and the polls and so on, will then become a self-fulfilling prophecy at Westminster level. I think that the point about free movement in Labour is incredibly important. And I think we can actually see how their their position on Brexit has really narrowed their approach to immigration. I think that it's not just Brexit that does that. But if we look at Jeremy Corbyn in 2015, when he was running to be Labour leader, the kinds of things that he was saying about immigration were sadly somewhat radical for the Labour Party. Um, and I think that we've really seen a narrowing of that discourse. So they haven't really pushed back against some of the anti-immigration narratives to the extent that they could have. They have to to a degree, but not really uh, placing the centre stage. They've kind of shied away from that debate. And I think that that is tied up with this 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 decision to say we will end free movement. And what that means is there have been some real missed opportunities. So if you look at the past two years of um, immigration politics in the UK, we had the Windrush scandal. This was a huge moment in British politics where I think for one of the first times ever, immigration was placed at the front of the centre stage in national politics without it being seen as a negative where immigrants are cast as the problem. Actually, And just to clarify, this was a scandal where Theresa May's government was harassing and deporting migrants from former British from British Commonwealth countries who who did have actually a legal right to be in the country. So yes, essentially the Windrush scandal was the hostile environment which was the government's set of policies introduced through 2014 and 2016 immigration acts that were affecting people who were British citizens, so who'd come to Britain um, from colonies and former colonies as citizens during the 60s and 70s. And I think that the fact that there was some attempt to use the Windrush scandal to change the debate and to push uh, for better policy. But actually, I think more could have been done there. I think that they were slightly too timid in that sense. And I think that that is tied up with the Brexit debate, but isn't solely reduced to it. And so I do think that this this issue of abandoning freedom of movement actually symbolically is really negative, but also the kinds of border regime that that will mean in terms of the growth of the border regime that we have in its uh, in its current state, will not be good for a lot of people in the UK. So really trying to change that debate, I don't think that that has happened in a big way. And I think that that has been one of the big failings over the past three years. Uh, one thing I'd like to hear about is the way, the complex way that migration politics over Brexit in Europe play out, given that you have this sort of anti-migrant nationalism that drove the Leave campaign that's all about sealing the UK's borders. But at the same time, the integration of the EU has meant the hardening of the EU's external borders and thus this repeated mass migrant deaths in the Mediterranean. Yeah, I think that the that the discourse around Fortress Europe and the incredibly racialized um, narratives that flow from that really played into the EU referendum campaign. So if you look at the Nigel Farage um, his breaking point poster, what you see there is black and brown people trying to come actually cross the border from, between Slovenia and Croatia. Um, that really fed in to the EU referendum campaign, even though that was supposed to be a campaign about migrants from Europe. It's incredibly complex because that debate is also classed as well as racialized. And the way that race is working is really slippery. But I think what is also what we also need to address is that there is this very hard 
anti-immigration nationalism on the right and that really took um, place in the Leave campaign. But the Remain, the Remain campaign wasn't so much better. So when the when the Leave campaign was saying immigration is a problem, we need to be closing, our, essentially closing our borders, you know, the Remain ca campaign had almost no response whatsoever. And when you had people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove talking about Turkey joining the EU and how that would mean people from Turkey would come to the UK and cause crime, there's really racialized arguments about criminality. The Remain campaign, led by people like David Cameron, basically had nothing to say other than Turkey won't join the EU. So they had been stoking these same anti-immigration um, politics in the years leading up to the referendum and then had very little to say about it when the Leave campaign were really using that to center their whole message. And I think that as we've moved forward, the left, as I've said, has has to some degree failed on this and historically has not been so 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 good on these issues and has not really been able to confront some of those racialized narratives that keep being reproduced in Britain at the moment in very, very subtle ways. I think that that is that is one of the biggest failings of um, the project thus far. Grace. Yeah, so I think this uh, Labour's issues around the migration go way back beyond Brexit um, and that no matter how this debate played out, you were always going to see those kind of um, institutional constraints within the Labour Party kick into gear at some point, pushing uh, what was a kind of fairly radical leadership and, and kind of anti-imperialist um, leadership uh, that really grew out. You know, a lot of the momentum behind Corbyn <laughs> merged with a small M uh, behind Corbyn grew up around the kind of various anti-imperialist, anti-globalisation movements that have been um, around the left for, for quite a long time yeah, the kind of uh, retreat into the very traditional Labour position of ending up being fairly reactionary on those issues, I think, you know, was was, was kind of inevitable, even without Brexit, in the absence of a very strong, a, a strong movement and strong mechanisms of accountability to keep the leadership accountable to that movement. And it's ironic now that you see kind of attitudes towards migration soften a bit, that those kind of attitudes amongst the leadership have hardened. But as Maya said, the kind of the Remain campaign, um, wasn't that much better. And I think there's a danger at the moment of Labour actually sitting into the worst possible position, which is this kind of um, the Paul Mason position of not only do we need to be tough on immigration, tough on crime, have all these kind of fairly regressive and imperialist policies around defence, but also stay within the European Union and not tackle any of the underlying issues about uh, that relate to the kind of the structure of the international economy, the structure of our international institutions yeah. that reinforce the very imperialism that causes migration in the first place. And what is really depressing for me is that we've we've throughout the whole of this debate now, we hear nothing about free movement of, of capital. We hear nothing about the role of, of financial globalization and uh, capital mobility associated with that that has taken place since the 1980s in keeping countries in the global south in a position of dependence, in keeping various parts of the EU itself in a position of dependence and maintaining and reproducing imperialist structures that create a kind of a system of enforced migration where, you know, the capital accumulates in the core and that kind of attract, well, capital investment accumulate in the core, uh, investment then flows back into the periphery uh, and people flow from um, periphery to core, often not of their own volition, but out of, um, out of desperation. And one thing that's good and positive, I think, is that we have seen uh, the movement kind of push back a lot on some of these issues around free movement. So uh, there was a kind of reaction recently um, about the Labour Party not, about the uh, leadership not imposing a whip on um, a vote around ending free movement. But what we're not seeing is these wider debates about 
ending capital mobility, um, ending the kind of imperialism associated with that, reforming international institutions, not just the EU, to make sure that we live under a system of one country, one vote, rather than one dollar, one vote, kind of ensuring that uh, all these international institutions allow for policy space, that allow for the pursuit of different development models, and generally kind of affecting massive um, transfers from north to south as well. And I think that kind of debate about imperialism is often eclipsed by some of these almost more parochial debates about um, the European Union, which is a shame. The um, failure to discuss issues to do with, say, free movement of capital, in other words, the other freedoms, we've got freedom of movement and then the other uh, three freedoms, uh, which, you know, all can pertain to freedoms for capital. Um, the failure to discuss this uh, indicates, um, I suppose, the inherited historical weaknesses of the left, um, sort of inability to develop the social forces that would be necessary to achieve a much deeper social transformation than uh, Corbyn and McDonnell presently have in, have in mind. But it also indicates that the debate is being conducted along the lines of a culture war rather than in terms of any strategy for long-term change. You see, we're not talking about Brexit in terms of what do we want to see 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line. And if we were talking along those lines, we would indeed be talking about such things as, I mean, it's, you know, not just this red herring debate about state aid, but the whole apparatus of uh, institutions and treaties and laws which the United Kingdom played such a crucial role in helping to develop, the social function and purpose of the single market itself. Now, I don't think that we are in a position to deliver a legacy. I know Chris, Chris Blakely will disagree with me on this, but I would like to think that we could at least have a discussion of what that would look like, rather than having our horizons narrowed to eternal cheerleading for the European Union. Um, and it's not surprising that we're stuck in this stalemate when the most vocal and militant case for remain that we've seen is um, associated with this strange fanaticism for an institution that is historically itself and presently mired in bloody racism. I mean, you can't look at the European Union without thinking about its role, central role, in the massive increase in the number of deaths in the Mediterranean every year. Uh, this is a direct result of policy uh, driven by the European Union, and it's uh, reaching hundreds um, every single year. Um, that's a massacre. That's a racist massacre. And it's being done as a matter of policy. It's unfortunate. And this was a basic requirement of, of countries like, you know, Spain way back when they joined. Them joining the EU required them to fortify what were once fairly porous, non-militarized borders with North Africa. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, if you look at the sort of rules on free movement, they are, as I, I don't think the, the solution to this is to reverse free movement, but the rules currently um, were devised alongside and with Fortress Europe so that it would be free movement only within Europe. And that was very uh, carefully designed as such. So we might want to think about what it would be like to have say, I mean, we're not anywhere near this stage yet, but what it would be like to have a country in which the um, immigration rules were far less restrictive than Fortress Europe? Because I don't think we realize just how, I mean, you, you don't even have this discussion in the UK, just how much more restrictive on immigration and free movement uh, of people and labor we've become, say, in the 70 years since um, World War II. You know, that's been completely neglected in this whole discussion. The result of that is that the, the right tends to have a monopoly on this issue. 
And insofar as there is any pushback at all, it tends to be on a values issue. In other words, you know, tolerance, uh, we're in favor of, you know, immigrants add things to our community and so on, which doesn't really address the issue at the level of principle. I do want to get into this Lexit question, but but first, Brexit isn't just a problem politically for labor, as we've discussed been discussing. But but Richard, as you just alluded to, it's also a problem in terms of the the fundamental architecture and rules of of Europe. Grace, can you can you speak to that? Sure. So I think that the, from speaking from kind of an economic perspective, which is obviously where I kind of come from. There are two main issues here. Um, one of them is, as we were just talking about, those four freedoms. And obviously, you know, we're all aligned on on free movement. But the issue there is free movement of capital. There are a number of reasons why any socialist project would really kind of be looking to um, halt the financial globalization of the last 40 years that has been premised upon capital account liberalization that really took off in the 70s and 80s and has been basically a, a fundamental precondition for um, the emergence of, of finance-led growth and of neoliberalism. So those restrictions on capital mobility that did exist pro- um, during the Bretton Woods era were removed steadily um, from the 80s onwards, sometimes forcibly, as through the structural adjustment programs that were imposed by institutions like the IMF. And what this has allowed, I mean, this has facilitated a number of different trends. Firstly, uh, a massive increase in tax evasion and avoidance, sometimes uh, in an illicit way. Um, So, for example, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa loses three times more in capital flight every year than it gains in international development aid. It also contributed to the financial crisis because basically when this happened, everyone said capital will flow from uh, global north to global south, from core to periphery. Uh, It actually happened the other way around. So capital flowed from the global south into the global north uh, and into asset markets in the global north, which helped to inflate these huge um, these huge bubbles. And obviously, uh, this project was undertaken with the kind of a leading role um, for the for the European Union, both in terms of uh, facilitating capital mobility within the EU. Obviously, capital mobility in Europe means within and uh, throughout the whole world as well. So it's just at, at the border as well as within the single market. Um, and they also played a really strong role in, in um, pushing that around the rest of the world. Um, the second issue is about state aid, as we've just touched upon. So this is kind of this is more more a political issue, really, uh, because there is obviously there's a kind of legalistic interpretation of um, European law, which basically says there are certain things that you can do and certain things that you can't do under EU, EU state aid rules, right? Like nationalized industries. Exactly. Yes. So uh, if you basically the the kind of interpretation that most people go with is the EU state aid rules allowed you allow a state to intervene in the case of market failure Um, and and some other things around national security and various other um, considerations. So the standpoint is you're basically you shouldn't states should not intervene in the operation of a free market. It's fairly neoliberal. Doesn't look into the ways in which state states construct markets. Just said states shouldn't intervene unless there is a market failure. And it's true that there are um, you know occasionally relative permissive interpretations of what market failure looks like. So anything that kind of helps the environment, for example. And there's a general um, consensus that most, if not all, of what was put in the Labour Manifesto in 2017 would probably be allowed on that kind of fairly legalistic interpretation. Most people also agree that anything that would go that much further, so um, for example, a national investment bank that lent directly to businesses or um, any kind of much greater state ownership uh, over the rest of the economy that was perceived to give certain businesses a, a, a competitive advantage would not be allowed. But then there's the wider question about political economy. Um, and I think that the uh, European elections recently kind of shone a massive light on this, because what we saw in the run up to this was a big debate going on in Europe 
about what the future would be for um, the single market and for for many of these rules, uh, because there are some that are very wedded and committed to the idea of of competition and the enforcement of these rules, and others who are saying there was a, a, a kind of a fairly big debate between um, Merkel and Macron on the one hand, and some of the more free market. Northern European countries, on the other hand, about whether or not competition regulation should be relaxed so that Europe could compete with China. And this question of of the political economy within the European Union, so who has the power, the kind of broader geopolitical context in which those internal power games take place uh, and how that affects legal outcomes is very important. Because as a Marxist, um, I would be, I would kind of uh, state that law and legal institutions are important, you know, as part of of the superstructure as something that determines um, the, the kind of many of the outcomes within a particular system, but that they are those structures are fundamentally shaped by disparities in, in material power, uh, material power within states and between states, and that the interpretation of much of this law depends on on those power relations. Yeah, what you see is is that uh, the interpretation of EU law reflects in many ways the power relations that pertain at the European level, and that largely involves, um, you know, it's it, in many ways it's kind of a German hegemonic project that is about. Um, maintaining the power of German capital, um, supported by a kind of French um, neo-colonial and um, status project, I suppose, that aims to kind of uh, project French power through membership of the European Union. And the balance between those two countries and the balance between those countries and the rest of the EU, not least based on, uh, in the Eurozone particularly, the value of the euro and how those, uh, those rules affect the current account deficits and surpluses of various different countries um, reflects, well, uh, determines, well, shapes, <laughs> shall we say, <laughs> uh, a lot of the the outcomes that end up coming out. So I don't really think that we can uh, rely on a kind of legalistic interpretation of some of these things. Maya, w- what's your take? Grace has made a strong case against the EU, but Richard has argued that there are no conditions for a exit. How do you see things? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the problem is that we haven't really had this debate at all. I don't think I'm totally persuaded by this idea of Lexit. There isn't even within the country much of an appetite for it because this discussion hasn't really been had. And I think the problem for Labour, this comes back again to this electoral problem for Labour of whether or not these arguments need to be made and can be made is that we are where we are in terms of the status of the EU um, the Brexit debate and also the negotiations. And what Labour does next is actually going to be incredibly important in terms of what happens if there's a general election or what happens regarding the Tory leadership contest. So, I mean, I don't think that it's unimportant, this debate about about Lexit, but there's also an immediacy about what Labour is going to do in terms of its response to the EU um, election results. And then also what happens next with the people who are going to be in charge of the negotiations, which may or may not be Boris Johnson, may or may not be Michael Gove, or may or may not be someone else who is also awful. And I think (laughs) that this, you know, this is a discussion it would have been perhaps more helpful to have had a long time ago. (laughs) This is is part of the issue of where we are with the Brexit debate and why that things have become so polarised is because everything is so ill-informed. And I think that so much of the our opinions were hardened and solidified during that referendum referendum campaign and then since essentially the media spectacle around this has been following the day-to-day of the negotiations and having very very little discussion around what our relationship with Europe could look like whether that means remaining in the EU or whether that means leaving it's really not something that has been up for discussion in any meaningful way if you compare it in particular to the amount of time that no deal has 
gotten in our media, even then, what no deal means, I think a lot of people don't really understand. So I think there's mm. this more immediate issue for the Labour Party that is really going to, is, is basically upon them now. And they're going to have to be responded to more or less now. Speaking of things that we should have discussed a long time ago, I, I'd like to step back for a moment and ask you to all to explain what Labour's approach to Brexit has looked like. It's often described as an approach of strategic ambiguity and also what you make of the current debate within Labour. We've been kind of alluding to and touching on this a little bit, but to, to more directly discuss the current debate within Labour pitting a general election against a second referendum. And, and that's a debate that in the wake of the EU elections, if I'm reading things right, seems to be tipping more toward Remainers. I just want to link this back to the whole question of what hasn't been discussed, um, because one of the reasons why we're on this, where, where we are is because of the accumulated balance of class forces, if I may put it like that. In other words, uh, you may. We, aren't, we, ha- we, ha- <laughs> we haven't had a discussion about the European Union because the trade unions and the Labour Party from the late 1980s gave up entirely on any sort of critique whatsoever. And that meant that there was a cross-party consensus until, I think you could check my uh, dates on this, but I think it was until about 1987, the Labour Party's official position was that it was opposed to Britain's membership of the European community, um, as it then was. And then it switched very abruptly. And that reflected on the one hand, the fact that the trade unions had been smashed in one strike after another, and it decided in a doctrine that was called the New Realism, well, we're not going to fight with the government. We're not going to have these big showdown strikes because we're going to lose. But we're also not going to get much out of this government by way of negotiation. So maybe we can look to the European uh, institutions to protect some basic framework of rights. And uh, I think it was Jacques Delors. By way of a social Europe. That's right. And Jacques Delors visited uh, the Trade Union Congress and said, you know, give them a, a, a spiel. Um, and they trade union delegates all stood up and applauded because they were terrifically demoralized after years of being beaten. Um, (laughs) So you have a situation in which um, there's a large part of the labor movement in this country that's historically used to now for several decades thinking of the European Union, not as any, you know, not as something that they uh, uh, greatly admire in and of itself, but as uh, a last ditch defense against the worst. And indeed, even against the worst of new labor. I and mean, if you remember, it was in the context of the sort of new labor wanting to keep opt-outs on various workers' rights, that the trade unions had to go and try and make them recant and uh, accede to these rules. So that's the situation that we've been in now. I was going to link this to your question directly, but now I've forgotten what the question was. To describe uh, the the strategy of strategic ambiguity and where that's heading now with the sort of renewed momentum behind the second referendum. Okay, briefly then. Look, Corbyn is a traditional Benite. He would, in all previous circumstances, have been in favor of leaving the European Union. But I think, first of all, he was trying to leave the Labour Party and couldn't do that on the basis of that position because he wouldn't be able to hold the party together, particularly the most powerful elements of it. Second of all, he probably recognized, I think uh, he was honest about this, that this, that what was happening then at this point, this break, 
Brexit project was being controlled by the right and it was being fought out as a battle within the right between the centre-right and the hard-right nationalists. So since then, you know, Labour put itself in such a position where essentially, you know, the idea was to say we're going to acknowledge the result, whatever it is, and we're going to accept it and we're going to deliver on it. But we're going to have damage limitation. But what damage limitation means had to be uh, susceptible to a degree of ambiguity because they're in opposition, they're not doing the negotiations, and anything they promise uh, today can be made to look stupid by the outcome of negotiations tomorrow. So, um, you know, Brexit... And they're trying to hold together Remain and Leave voters who are united behind Corbyn's economic program, but not on the question of Brexit. Well, I mean, I think that... Yeah, to an extent, uh, although I think the importance of Leave voters has sometimes been overestimated in this. I mean, I think they are uh, they are important in the Labour coalition, but uh, they are the ones who are most likely to switch, to be honest. You know, we're talking about what are called red UKIPers, older, formerly Labour voters who swung to UKIP uh, in the northern cities kind of swung to Labour in 2017, were the ones who are most likely to have so-called regrets. So it's not straightforward, this question. But that said, I think their other problem that they're having is that Brexit has become a floating signifier. In other words, it means just like hard Brexit, just like no deal Brexit, it means so many different things to different people that it's a dialogue of the death. And that introduces a degree of toxicity to the discussion that so uh, the longer you have this position of strategic ambiguity and the more the, uh, the sort of opinion polarizes, although what it's polarizing around is not exactly clear, the more difficult it becomes for Labour. And one last point about this, until a few years ago, the number one issue on everybody's minds was the economy, right? It was austerity um, as related to that. It was living standards. It was wages. And increasingly that has been usurped by Brexit. In other words, Brexit is becoming the container for everything else. And, you know, whenever you hear that the economy is not doing so well or something, inevitably, there's a whole bunch of people who are going to blame Brexit, uh, as though it isn't a lot more complicated than that. And that means that, you know, for Labour's in this impossible situation where, of course, the, you know, national culture is polarising around this issue, but Labour doesn't want to polarise on this issue. I, I have a feeling that, you know, in the next year or so, they, as a last ditch resort and, you know, very reluctantly, they may come round to saying, let's have a second referendum as a least worst option. But I think they also know that that would be a very dangerous sort of move to undertake because, first of all, um, the Brexit may win twice. Nigel Farage and his, uh, you know, Confederates might win twice. And that would create a terrifically t- toxic environment uh, in British politics. But I think uh, given that everything else is now falling apart, they may be pushed into it. So I think, you know, thus, thus far, yeah, you're right, Labour has been strategic ambiguity because our position is about uh, dividing the 99% from the 1%, not the 58% from the, um, sorry, the 52% from the 48%. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily just about strategic electoral calculations. It's also about narrative um, and about how that relates to, I suppose, the consciousness of the group that they're trying to to build. Uh, because if we're not careful, and I mean, Ronan's piece was absolutely excellent on this, we will end up with um, the kind of, you know, if we end up having a second referendum, and it's going to be incredibly close, whatever the result, and it ends up dividing people based on, um, you know, whether or not you're a winner or a loser, whether you're open or you're closed. These kind of uh, categories of self-ascription that have very little to do with the kind of material dynamics that we were so close 
to re um, kind of repolarizing after their being obscured for such a long time under New Labour and um, the kind of the general climate of neoliberalism that sought to kind of uh, blunt the, the lines of, of class conflict through, you know, the provision of asset, um, the, the extension of asset uh, ownership and, and credit. So, you know, that that project of attempting, attempting to re-sharpen um, that division between the many and the few, between those who live off work and live off wealth, is potentially really threatened by Brexit. And there are a lot of people that basically say, you know, it's class war or culture war. I don't think it's that simplistic. But there certainly is a danger that, um, that putting this issue of kind of open versus closed at the very core of what Labour, the coalition that Labour is trying to build, does mute that much longer term project of attempting to build a, a group that is pushing for a kind of move towards democratic socialism, really, based on the fact that they have a, a material interest in doing so. And that's, I think, the kind of danger of us slipping into this second referendum position, which I think now, you know, is 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 what what is going to end up happening um and, and to be honest you know i don't necessarily disagree with what some of the other participants have said about the fact that the, the class forces but perhaps more importantly the balance of forces within the party simply don't exist for us to have been pushing any kind of particularly anti-eu position there was a time when we probably could have done that and had that debate but we just didn't get there um and now you know it, this this has become so polarizing and about so many other things as richard said it's a floating signifier um, that, that the membership is pretty staunchly um, pro-Remain. And Corbynism, as this project that is supposed to mem the membership of the party and by extension kind of ordinary working people closer to, to government, cannot simply go against uh, the membership of the Labour Party on this really critical issue. It just would completely betray the entire spirit of the project. Um, so we do have to now look at, uh, at both the kind of wider forces that we're facing and also the kind of forces internally within the party and make a decision based on that um, and maybe that does end up as a second referendum I think it would be uh, I think it could be really dangerous for all the reasons that I've just listed um, but also because I think you know it, it's going to have to be no deal versus remain and there's a real danger that no deal would win um, but I think you know more generally like if Labour does commit to um, to a second referendum in its next manifesto it is going the party is going to have to be at least 10 times more radical on all areas of all other areas of economic and social policy if it wants to make sure that that division between the many and the few between living off work and living off wealth is the one that it highlights during the election campaign and for me that means all sorts of things it means kind of controls on capital mobility it means the socialization of ownership much more broadly beyond just those utilities that they've agreed to nationalize and that doesn't mean just mean more nationalizations it means kind of collective and democratic ownership of, of much wider areas of the economy it means, you know, a massive Green New Deal. Uh, it means yeah, a four-day week, various other things that uh, collectively would kind of give the media and our political class such a shock that they might even kind of talk about that more than they're talking about Brexit. So, yeah, I mean, for me, that's the thing that I've got in mind at the moment the most is how we build the class consciousness of a coalition of people that has an interest in moving beyond capitalism. Um, and I see that, as a, as a coalition that is based on people that have a material interest in moving beyond capitalism, but that doesn't mean it's an economic coalition. It's a coalition of all those who are um, oppressed, exploited and marginalised uh, by a system that puts uh, the promotion of private profit at its, its core. And I think if we lose that now at this really critical moment, that's a really dangerous um, thing for socialists. Maya, what's your take? Has, has the viability of strategic ambiguity come to an end? How, how can Labour engage in 
this fight in a way that shifts that shifts the fight onto terrain that's advantageous to the left? Yeah, I mean, I think at this stage, there are just really no good options. Like, all options are bad, and it is about trying to figure out what is the least bad option. Even pumping for a general election at this stage, if there were to be a general election right after this Tory leadership contest, it's not so clear how good that would be for the Labour Party if this that was an election about Brexit and Labour tried to maintain this kind of ambiguity, or if they went for a second referendum, what that would mean for their coalition of voters. I think that there's never been any particularly good options for Labour being the party in opposition, whilst they've basically had to witness this car crash of a Conservative party tearing itself to pieces, whilst also catastrophically failing at trying to negotiate with the EU. But I do think there is a, a broader issue and a broader tension here that is quite interesting and it does to some extent take us beyond Brexit, which is that when Jeremy Corbyn ran his leadership campaign in 2015, there were two things, two broadly two things that he was saying. One was changing policy, so taking on um, austerity and changing the debate on things like immigration, but the other was to democratise the party. And I think it's quite easy to forget and not really engage with how centrally controlled the party had become under New Labour and how they really tried to grip the reins of power so tightly. Corbyn said that this was going to be about making the Labour Party a democratic movement. And I think there's been a tension over Brexit that maybe... It doesn't. It, this this debate does not is not confined to just Brexit. It is about what do you mean when you say we're going to democratize a party? Where do those lines? Where do we draw those lines about around democratization? And there has been a real tension between what the members want and what the leadership think is best in terms of the Brexit position. So I think we may see. I think it's very likely we will now see them back a second referendum, as has been some of the murmurings coming out from people like Diane Abbott and John McDonnell. Um, as Emily Thornbury, who is in the shadow cabinet, made that her position quite evident, if it hadn't already been clear enough, on the night of the um, the EU um, election results. Because I think there is also, as well as this, this question about democratising and what it means to democratise and what it means for members to have some kind of power, there's also a question of morale. And if you're going to be building some kind of movement, however you might define that, how you keep people infused. And it's just so difficult to do that around an issue that is so incredibly tiring and so incredible it's so difficult to see a good way out of it so I think they they have to to some extent confront this they're going to have to do that at some point I don't think that's going to potentially particularly be a good outcome or an easy an easy thing to do but if they're going to try and shift the debate back to something that is not about Brexit and talk about some of these policies that are incredibly appealing to a lot of people and incredibly needed right the UK is essentially falling to pieces if you look at cuts to schools if you look at cuts to other public services people are really really struggling and I think that is totally being eclipsed by this whole discussion of Brexit just how bad people's lives are getting is not being engaged with at the level of media and political debate. And to get to that, for Labour to be able to get to that point, I think they have to deal with, with this Brexit issue and take like basically confront it, no matter how uncomfortable and painful that is going to be. I think that is something that they're going to have to do, not just to get those messages through to the, the public about their economic agenda, but also because there is this tension with the members that is going to come to a head at Labour Party conference. So if we don't see this happen, you know, over the summer, I think that it's go- it is going to happen at the late party conference in, in September. Grace, if you need to duck out, that's fine. Cool. I will have to. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. 
This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by the Socialism 2019 Conference, which is taking place this July 4th through 7th in Chicago. Socialism 2019 is the largest socialist conference in North America. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, and socialists fighting for the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, and organizing their workplaces and social movements. Participate in panels and discussions on black feminism, radical film, reparations, Palestinian liberation, and the socialist case for open borders. Speakers at Socialism 2019 include Naomi Klein, David Harvey, Astra Taylor, Amy Goodman, Anand Gopal, Francis Fox Piven, me, Dan Denver, and many more. Teacher strike leaders from the past year will come together at the conference with other teachers and union organizers to share experiences, inspire, and strategize. Socialism 2019 Conference is organized by Haymarket Books and Jacobin and is endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Visit socialismconference.org to register today. That's socialismconference.org. Richard, it's a moment of polarization that, that labor didn't choose and certainly doesn't want and certainly doesn't benefit from. But it seems like they can't duck it or, or wish it away. It is an issue upon which things are polarizing. Yeah, but um, I suppose the question is, if Brexit is a floating signifier, as, uh, as I put it, and if it sort of means lots of different things for different people, and if Remain means different things for different people, what are the, uh, what are the ways in which we can work with a grain of this? Because that's what we're going to end up having to do. What are the positive aspects of this? I would say that when you have hundreds of thousands of people marching against Brexit in central London, these mostly are not Blairites. They're mostly not um, sort of centre-right Tories. They're mostly not fans of Alistair Campbell and Anna Soubry. We see that the national media um, extols and lionises such people, but I don't think that's where this is coming from. I think they just don't want to live in a country where the most bigoted, hateful voices promoting not just racism. I mean, I should say this. I mean, it's a series of issues linked. Uh, Farage is a sexist. Uh, You know, his party was full of homophobes. I don't know whether he has any hang-ups on that himself. But, uh, you know, and linked (laughs) to that, there's a sort of sense of class interest, you know, uh, and it's really privet hedge, middle-class interest that we're talking about here, linked to some of the sort of uh, spivs in the city. That's obviously, you know, it's good that people don't want to live in that kind of society. It's good that people want to fight that. It doesn't necessarily mean they're all up for the status quo. And the fact that so many um, of the sort of supporters of Remain are in the Labour Party, to be specific, they're in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, suggests that they're not just interested in the status quo. But we have to go back and remember that Jeremy Corbyn himself, you know, he chose not to make Europe the axis of his radicalism. He chose to say, look, we're going to remain in Europe because it's the best option in the circumstances. And I think it's hard to criticize him for that, given, you know, the situation that he faced. Therefore, uh, you know, it, it now makes sense to say, look, 
we're not going to have, you know, a, a break with Europe as our big uh, gesture of radicalism. That's not going to be the point at which we radically shake things up. We have to decide what we want to do with this. And given that um, the idea of having some sort of compromise, soft Brexit hasn't worked, well, we're going to have to put it back to the people. Now, Owen Jones has made the suggestion, and what I think was quite an intelligent piece in The Guardian, that, you know, you can make it a democratic issue. You can say, look, if there are Labour MPs, including frontbench MPs, who wish to campaign for leave, they have every right to do so. We will not whip them. We will not force them. But you would also know that probably if you had a second referendum, most Labour MPs would campaign for Remain. Labour, uh, most Labour activists would campaign for Remain. Momentum would campaign for Remain. Trade unions would probably mostly campaign for Remain. It would be pretty clear what Labour was trying to do. And they could do it on the basis not of defending you know, the status quo before 2016, as if that's in any way defensible, as if, you know, that that economy was working for people, but on the basis that we need to have some sort of framework of stability so that we can carry out some sort of reforms. There needs to be some sort of uh, predictable basis upon which we can uh, conduct these struggles. And if the European Union wants to pick a fight over nationalizing the Royal Mail, nationalizing the railways and so on, well, we're going to do it. We're going to make it a fait accompli. And then we'll fight them in the courts and uh, we'll see how, how good the European Union looks then. Uh, I think that's probably going to be the only um, strategy now. Maya? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think that if, if, they're gonna, if they're going to go for a second referendum, they're going to have to allow some form of freedom for their MPs, including frontbenchers, because that is also part of the reason that their, their Brexit approach has been the way that it has been. If you look at the votes that have taken place in Parliament, if you look at how Labour MPs have voted, there have been some key people who have not voted with the Labour Party and some key people who have been quite vocal about the necessity of leaving the European Union, whether that be because they are themselves Lexiteers or whether that be because of their constituency and how their constituency voted. So I think that this issue about a second referendum does have to take that into account. And I think that they are going to they're going to have to to campaign to remain in the EU, but they're going to have to really sell that vision to people. And I actually think that there has been an unfair rewriting of history when we look back at what happened during the first referendum, which is that Jeremy Corbyn simply didn't try hard enough, and it was his lackluster engagement with that campaign that helped deliver the Brexit result. I mean, I think that's absolutely ludicrous. It's shockingly familiar to the (laughs) U.S. where like Bernie Sanders campaigning on behalf of Hillary Clinton in 2016, despite so many of his supporters not wanting that, it just disappears from the (laughs) the history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's total madness to suggest there's there's one particular response that Jeremy Corbyn gave that people like to cite as an example of his failure to really properly engage with that debate, which was when he was asked on a scale of one to 10, how much do you support the European Union? He paused and (laughs) you could see him really consider it and say, you know, seven out of 10. And people think that that is absolutely appalling. He should have said 10 out of 10. And I think that actually to engage with, to continue to engage with some of those issues that the European Union, ha- I mean, there's deeply embedded problems within the European Union to really address those and to talk about. I think reform is actually incredibly difficult, but I think to at least explain that that very idea to people. So reform at home and how that is going to happen and how that will look, but also trying to engage with people across Europe. And I think there's also something that we haven't 
totally touched upon, which is thinking about how the far right across Europe is really organizing. I mean, it's, it's not being so successful in, to, in some ways, but there is an attempt. There is an attempt to, to try to um, really mobilize across Europe. And it's terrifying to see how well, not just the Brexit party here, have done, but also parties in other parts of Europe. So there is also something about what does that more hopeful movement that goes across borders, not just Europe, but globally, that really tries to take on some of those such deep-rooted anti-immigration arguments, deep-rooted to the extent that the left has reproduced them in a lot of places for so long. What does that look like? And I think trying to engage with that politics in a really honest way would be good for Labour because of this ambiguity has has not been such a great... I understand where it's come from, but it hasn't been such a great look for them. So I actually think trying to think about what Britain's engagement with Europe would be like if Jeremy Corbyn was in Downing Street would be a helpful way to have that conversation, even if there are significant limitations on what some of that reform might look like. Let me ask you about, both of you, about a concrete example of this, which is that Yanis Varoufakis's DM25 movement was running precisely on this idea to counter the internationalism or Europeanism of the nationalist far right in Europe with a left internationalism and Europeanism. And it didn't turn out so great. What's your assessment? Well, I think that Yanis Varoufakis had a fairly coherent critique of the um, European institutions, um, but his solution uh, is to try to reform the institutions within, uh, from within by building up some sort of uh, democratic grassroots network and taking control of the European Parliament. But given his knowledge of how undemocratic fundamentally mm. uh, the European project actually is, it seems to have been a bit naive. And also, I, I just I don't think that these movements have the social basis or the infrastructure that would be necessary to achieve what they're trying to achieve anyway. There is a breakdown uh, in the traditional sort of sort of party models uh, to some extent. But we've seen with the Labour Party that can be quickly reversed. And then finally, you know, with uh, Yanis Varoufakis, I mean, the big problem is that he represents uh, a political failure. Now, that might be unfair to him, but Syriza... But it's a reality. Syriza, it's a re- I mean, he claims that uh, he had a strategy that might have worked uh, had it actually been followed. And I've no doubt that the right wing of Syriza outmaneuvered him on that. But uh, that's not the point. The point is that he went in there thinking that he could outplay the European Union and they had him over a barrel from the beginning. And, uh, you know, the... I don't think DM25 has much capital as a result, just in the same way that quite a lot of, you know, that uh, when Syriza finally essentially capitulated, there was a left wing within Syriza that represented quite a lot of its elected officials and quite a lot of its uh, membership broke away. But, you know, they were discredited uh, because they didn't have any alternative. Um, and they And they were crushed in the following elections. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, so they they went into the sort of intergovernment without really preparing people for the fact that they were going to face this crushing situation and were punished. So we face the reality that a left project within the European Union has to have a realistic assessment of what the European institutions entail. But the other thing is that we may perhaps be at a stage where the centre is consolidating itself 
and any left project that hasn't stabilized itself by now is going to face difficulties because we've had a few years of relative capital stability. And I say that, you know, I stress the relative part of this. The, the global economy is not looking booming. It's not dynamic. But we haven't been uh, in the sort of period of, um, you know, Eurozone crisis, uh, declining living standards, uh, declining wages, uh, unemployment and all the rest of it that we had seen before. So there's been a relative political and economic stabilization. And that's giving the... If you look at the socialists in Spain who have seemed to check Podemos' Podemos's advance pretty effectively, or Macron, who seems to have consolidated his, his base even amid, even in the wake of the yellow vest protests. Oh, yeah. But I, I mean, to, just to I, uh, sort of qualify both points, first of all, uh, the socialists in Spain had to put up with having a, a relatively left leadership um, imposed, which, Sanchez. yeah, Sanchez, which, uh, you know, the Spanish press, particularly the socialist aligned press, were absolutely hysterical about it. They were uh, terrified of this guy. I mean, I think wrongly, but, uh, you know, it, so the, it's it's not a straightforward case of the centre uh, reconstituting its power in that case, although that is obviously probably the trajectory. In, in France, I think it's interesting that uh, Macron was still, um, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but the early polls suggested that he was slightly defeated by the far right, by the Front National. Um, so although he held together, um, uh, you know, about a fifth of the electorate, uh, in the face of the yellow vest, that's not really that surprising that there is a fifth of French voters who, um, you know, amid a social uprising that the overwhelming majority are supportive of, a fifth are prepared to give Macron their vote. I don't think that necessarily by itself constitute a recovery, but across the continent, by and large, what you saw was an increase in the vote for the Liberals. That has you know, different dynamics across each nation state. But I think the underlying economic stability is certainly helping. How long that lasts, of course, uh, can't be said because capitalism is in a, you know, globally precarious situation. Sort of we're into what year three of Trumpism. It hasn't really brought it down yet. So who knows? Maya, Richard's comments make me want to turn this discussion on its, on its head a bit. We've been talking about these horrible results for labor, but in fact, Corbyn's Labour Party remains very much the brightest spot for the left in Europe, mm. maybe in the world. What should the European left and left elsewhere be be learning from labor? We've been talking about its its uh, strategic dilemmas and setbacks, but yeah. So I think um, I think there is a lot to learn if you if you look at if you look at what has happened over the past three years. You know, if we can park Brexit to a degree, uh, just for a moment, if you think about where Labour were before Jeremy Corbyn, and we really had this kind of, and when Miliband was elected, he was seen as like the left candidate, despite the fact that Diane Abbott was also um, in that uh, leadership contest. And I think that that really is testament to just how poor the left was doing in in within the Labour Party. And so this kind of attempt by Jeremy Corbyn to really confront some of these status quo arguments that were essentially accepted, if not implemented, um, in terms of policy by Labour in opposition and then by Labour in government under New Labour has really it has really shifted some of the terms of the debate. So yes, Labour has not really managed in this Brexit debate to set out a particularly clear stall because they've had to have this constructive ambiguity. But on issues like the economy, they have really shifted some of the debate in Britain. And I think that that should be a model to a lot of a lot of parties across Europe. And if you know, if you look at 
for instance, like sister parties, like in Germany, the SPD, they did incredibly badly. And having this kind of, again, this kind of soul searching. Um, and so did Dalinka. Yeah, ex- exactly. And I think that there is there is also with some of these left, um, with some of these with some of these sister parties, if they haven't maintained this kind of status quo approach, they've tried to adopt slightly more economically radical policies, but gone really, really hard line on anti-immigration politics and really taken a negative stance on some of those issues, you know, that would be deemed to be around, um, quote unquote, diversity. And I think that actually, although Labour could have been stronger on some of those issues, they definitely haven't, they have not capitulated to the degree that some of those other the other politicians and parties have in other parts of Europe. So I think that is also something of a lesson. If you look at who was coming out to vote for Jeremy Corbyn in 2017, it was incredibly diverse, incredibly diverse parts of London. The Labour's vote share increased and they were bringing more people out to vote for them with a really energised message. So I think it's, yes, the economic agenda, but actually also this willingness to in some way confront some of these arguments around immigration and to some extent around race. As I've said, I think they could and should go further on that, but they certainly haven't taken, uh, at least from the leadership's point of view, if you look at people like Diane Abbott, John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn, they haven't taken this hardline stance that maybe some other parts of the left would do. So I think there are lessons to learn from that and really it is not about repeating the same mistakes of the past and this kind of managerial politics that we know is so dead across Europe. It's like so dead. And if if it's not dead now, it will be dead soon, I think, in some places, even if it's managing to sustain itself in some way. With the far right organising, I think it's it's not clear how those politicians are going to really sell their agenda to people when they're being confronted with these really, really hardline anti-immigration messages. The the penultimate topic I want to make sure we discuss is what role climate politics, especially in the context of the insurgent youth climate movement across Europe, what role that's played in all of this? And if it contributed to the green strong showing and and what role Labour's been playing? Well, Labour has uh, caught up with this a little bit late. There um, has recently been the launch of Labour for a Green New Deal follow- following on from Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez um, and uh, the um, Senate motion. And the British proposal is based upon there's always been a Green New Deal group or rather there's been a Green New Deal group here for some years, largely ignored. And the British proposal is based upon that. Um, And it's a little bit more radical than the American one in that it uh, talks about sort of constraining finance capital in various ways. But in terms of its importance, I have a feeling that it's going to become a lot more important than it has been. I mean, first of all, Extinction Rebellion, what was really telling about that protest was that although they, you know, set out to break the law, get themselves arrested, all the rest of it, they were treated with a kind of wary and cautious respect in the national media. I mean, there was some demonization. Um, There always is when it's protests in this country, particularly the right-wing pundits and press and so on uh, got, got on their case. But apart from that, there was a sort of an acknowledgement that they're talking about something that's real and can't just be avoided. And that had the effect of pushing Labour to get a motion in the House of Commons declaring a climate emergency. And there's talk now of the Labour Party pursuing a green industrial revolution. What that amounts to in practice uh, is really hard to say. 
if it becomes, you know, we're going to build up the nuclear industry, and unfortunately, mm. uh, there have been hints that that's what uh, is going to going to be involved. That we're going to, you know, continue funding these um, uh, nuclear companies, you know, which are vastly costly. Uh, they're not particularly safe, and this, uh, you know, nuclear industry is not particularly sustainable. But uh, so that's one part of it, and the other part of it is it doesn't seem to have a sort of coherent, holistic uh, framework for implementing a transition to a zero carbon economy. It's it's good to set that as a goal. But if you recall, under New Labour, I think it was Ed Miliband who set the goal of reducing uh, carbon emissions by 50% uh, by a certain time. And of course, uh, we've gone in the exact opposite direction. So we need to have uh, a much more developed framework for actually uh, making that happen. I think that the, the question is, will the effects of climate change register in such a way that they're a, a, an issue on the doorstep? There are some senior Labour figures who think it will and that the Labour has to start preparing now. And so, you know, the left has to claim this issue before it's claimed uh, by somebody else. Did the Greens sort of outflank Labour on this? Is that somewhat uh, responsible for their strong showing? To some extent, but uh, it's also important to bear in mind that a lot of people who would never vote Lib Dem uh, in a million years mm. um, wanted to vote for uh, Remain. And uh, so to a large extent, there was a protest vote going on there. But yeah, to some extent, Extinction Rebellion put green issues on the agenda. But the fact is that it was Jeremy Corbyn who went and spoke to the Extinction Rebellion rally. It was the Shadow Chancellor who met with uh, John McDonnell, who met with the Extinction Rebellion protesters. Um, there's no necessary or inevitable reason now why the Greens should be the first to benefit. So um, a lot depends, of course, on what the left does. But I think that there is increasing attention to this on the left. Uh, after, I have to say, several decades in which the left has been somewhat reticent on the issue. Maya? Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think that the European elections, it is difficult to read too much from that in that a lot of people will will potentially vote for parties that they would not vote for in a general election when they know that it is more or less a two-horse race. And I think a lot of people were trying to register their discontent with Labour's position on Brexit. So I wouldn't overread into that. I think the Greens ran quite a clear campaign, which really did help them. And they were actually somewhat, I would say, slightly clearer than the Liberal Democrats, who also had a Remain, you know, big Remain message, but whose leader, Vince Cable, has also been known to run around talking about the problems that immigration causes in Britain. So I think that the Greens actually have, have, have had a pretty clear message on some of those issues. But I also think there is a problem for Labour moving forward on this, or potential problem, because if you look at the Labour Party manifesto from 2017, things like saying that they want to continue with um, the offshore oil and gas industry. Uh, they have a trade, big trade union backer, Unite, who Len McCluskey, the general secretary, came out and backed and supported the third runway being built at Heathrow when that was announced. So I think there is a, another tension there between this, it's this kind of classic thing that we see time and again in the labor movement, which is this idea of protecting jobs and yeah, yeah. protecting the climate, I think that those two things are not actually opposed to one another. And actually, if labor can really begin to to center this issue of jobs and so to move the debate, tend to rest the debate away a bit from the unions um, and put that within their green their Green New Deal and really like put that up front to try and address that very issue, that will be incredibly helpful. But I think also this issue of cut through 
the Extinction Rebellion was, I mean, this may have been for a, a number of different reasons, but it was one of the few things that I can remember, aside from like internal um, arguments within the Conservative Party, really pushing Brexit from the news agenda. I think that that is for a number of different reasons, but part of it is actually that there is a real interest in wanting to understand such a um, movement that can, you know, shut down whole streets in central London. It was amazing to walk around bits of central London and have it be totally pedestrianised, aside from anything else. And actually they really did shape some of that debate and they were taken pretty seriously. I think that paired with the youth climate strikes means that this issue is just not going to go away. And if Labour can push this debate slightly further, I think that will be incredibly helpful for them. What that will mean on the doorstep, it's really difficult to say. I think the situations are not com directly comparable, but if you look at what happens in Australia, the Labour Party there was, you know, the polling suggested that they, they were going to win. That didn't happen. And there has been all this post-election analysis that they assumed some of the climate messages was cut through on the doorstep. I think it's potentially slightly more complex than that, but you do have a country like Australia where climate is such a huge issue, such an immediate evident issue, and is not necessarily um, something that is allowing the Labour Party there to really to get into power. As I say, I think that's for a number of different reasons, not least just how toxic Australian politics is. But I think that also tells us about how maybe how we how you do that messaging and how you frame some of those debates, how important it is to put this front and centre consistently and be very clear about this issue around jobs versus climate, them not being the two things not being in opposition to one another will be... There's only a trade-off between jobs and the environment in the absence of a transformative political, economic, and ecological alternative. If there's no alternative that's transformative, then there can be a real trade-off. First of all, I mean, in terms of jobs, um, there has been there have been some suggestions. Uh, there was a, a report published earlier this week suggesting, look, if we want to reach our carbon targets, we're going to have to reduce the working week. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we have to think about uh, differently about jobs and work than we have historically done. In terms of the relationship between organized labor, labor movements and uh, the working class and uh, ecological consciousness, it's interesting that, you know, it's not always been this conservative model of trade unionism with its very productivist attitude to work and its instrumentalist attitude to, to nature, as it were, um, that um, has predominated. You know, there's a historian, Chad Montry, who um, sort of specializes in tracing the origins of ecological consciousness to the conflict between capital and labor, the birth of the Industrial Revolution and so on, and is therefore very critical of the the idea of environmentalism's middle class or bourgeois mm -hmm. origins. Uh, and um, I think that uh, that makes a certain degree of sense, but it does also mean that when we look at the history of the left and its dreams of emancipation, they've always been predicated on massively expanded use of energy sources. And uh, we, we now face a situation where that, that may no longer be tenable. So underlying this, there's, uh, we're going to have to rethink what, uh, what it means to have an interest in jobs and so on, because to have a job is to have capital extract, make a costly extraction of energy from your body and put it to work in producing stuff, quite a lot of which is actually, you know, not strictly useful from a human perspective, that's only good for perpetuating capitalism, um, and which obviously has the effect of accelerating mass extinctions. And, you know, it's, uh, we talked about, um, or we used to... Richard, you're saying to save the planet, we have to abolish work. <laughs> 
to some extent, but I'm saying that, uh, in, you know, in, in the past, uh, we used to say that capital produced its own gravedigger. Unfortunately, as long as she works for capital, the worker has to be her own gravedigger. Yeah. Um, so um, we have to rethink what it is we want out of work. I'm not saying we have to abolish work because we can't. Not abolish labor. Well, we can abolish work, but not labor, maybe. Uh, we can we can reduce the amount of work that we do particularly and we can reconsider what is economically valuable to us um, because at the moment all these questions are determined within the framework of capital's own values um, and that's obviously that means that we're locked into into you know the capitalist death spiral but that's you know in the short term obviously we need some intelligent mediations between where we are now and where we're going to end up if we want to fully emancipate ourselves from, you know, mass extinction and all the rest of it. So we do need to talk seriously to people about how they're going to live if we start shutting down coal plants, oil manufacturing and so on. So we do need, unfortunately, to talk about jobs. But we can also talk to people about, look, how would you like to just have a bit more free time? How about starting off with a four day working week so that we're not, um, you know, pumping out so much? And how about redistributing a bit of wealth? But that's going to require a much more radical confrontation with capital than just voting in a Labour government. The last thing I want to talk about that we haven't directly addressed yet, and that's important context for listeners outside of the UK, is that Prime Minister Theresa May, the the current Tory prime minister is on her way out after a tenure defined by just repeated humiliating failures to make Brexit happen. And then shortly after she announced her exit, Nigel Farage's Brexit party, a single purpose Brexit vehicle, won the most votes in the EU election on a hard Brexit platform. Explain why May is leaving the basis for these utterly vicious divisions amongst conservatives and the British right as a whole. And then what and who comes next? Uh, I mean, I think that this is like, in a way, I have very, very little sympathy for Theresa May. But um, and I think she actually she's handled this all incredibly badly when I think she could have potentially found a way out of this without. She basically spent a lot of time trying to pander to the um, right of her party, people who are so Eurosceptic that they, you know, the, the, the real handful of them who think that no deal is potentially a good idea. But I think these are really long-term issues for the Conservative Party in, in the sense of these divisions around Europe are not new. And so in some ways she is also living out, it's almost like the really terrible final end scenes of this really long drawn out um deeply divided affair in within the Conservative Party that has taken place over decades. And I mean, let's not forget that part of the reason why we are we even ended up here was not because the Conservative Party simply wanted to, to try and resolve its own internal dynamics on Europe. What David Cameron was trying to do when he proposed this referendum in the Conservative manifesto in 2015, during an election he thought he was not going to win, they were not going to win a majority, was that he was trying to see off UKIP. Right. So that this is also like a broad attention on the right and the Conservatives trying to manage essentially Nigel Farage's awful um, attempt to to bring Europe and immigration to the centre of every single political debate. And and thus, but ironically and contradictorily laying the groundwork for Nigel Farage doing just that. Yeah, exactly. And so this is essentially what has happened at least over the past 10 years, if not longer, is that the the 
Conservative Party and the the people who would see themselves as the sensible conservatives have really, really helped to sow the seeds that and like led us to where we are today and basically fueled support for Nigel Farage and his brand of politics. And I think that what happens next is just potentially terrifying. We have all the options are bad. Some options are more terrible than others. At the moment, Boris Johnson is the front runner. If you look at history, <laughs> yes, I mean, which itself is absolutely terrifying that we live in a country where that can even happen, but we do. And what could be worse, Jacob Rees-Mogg? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I suppose. It, uh, yeah, I think it's very difficult. They're all their own <laughs> brands of terrible. I mean, Boris Johnson is someone who will is a, an, a tall opportunist and will quite happily trade openly on Islamophobic and anti-immigration racist sentiment and is really unapologetic about that. He was evidently a total catastrophe as foreign secretary and escaped somewhat unscathed from all of that and really, really knows how to play the media and really knows how to control the image around him, which I think is incredibly worrying. But, you know, in recent history, the favourite has not been conservative leader. I don't know. I'm not saying that that's not going to happen, but there are other potentials. I also envisage a world in which we are, we do have Michael Gove as prime minister, which is also terrible. I mean, I I could read off all the names and they're all terrible for their own different reasons. I think part of the big problem with Boris Johnson is his, the way that he talks about no deal and just how in a lot of ways unreliable he is as a politician. It's very unclear. He is, he is such an opportunist that he is, is really, really putting front and center this idea of no deal and really talking that up. And I think to have someone like that as prime minister is not is not where we want to be if we're going to have to continue to have a conservative government. But I don't think any of the I don't think any of the conservative candidates are in any way good. The idea that Sajid Javid would be a good prime minister is just, you know, totally laughable. So it looks pretty bleak right now. I think, regardless of who it is, some are, some are bleaker than others. Richard, your thoughts, and maybe you can close out by also saying how uh, how these contradictions on the right will present some beautiful opportunity for labor? Uh, you know, uh, Salvage has a slogan, bleak is the new red. Um, and we're, <laughs> we're, we're, all, we're all for the bleak. Um, but look, look um, in terms of the candidates for, it's very interesting that um, Maya mentioned uh, Sajid Javid at the end there, because I saw some membership polls, Tory membership polls last year showed that he was the only candidate who would, among the members, beat Jacob Rees-Mogg. And it's interesting, and I'd be interested to figure out why that is, but my sense is that these, I think these polls were taken while Javid was um, doing some tough manoeuvring on immigration. Mm. You know, he's done this a number of times, so he's Mm. built up his credentials among the rank and file, even though his past is as a Remainer. So perhaps just enough MPs would back him. He's been, um, if you remember, he allowed the child of a British woman to die in a refugee camp uh, in order to, you know, be tough on ISIS, as it were, uh, that built up his credibility with the, the base. But it is very clear now that whoever wins is likely to offer a very hard position on Brexit. The uh, the one with the most nominations among MPs at the moment, from what I've seen, is uh, probably the worst possible candidate, not, uh, you know, not for the British public as such, but for the Conservative Party, Jeremy Hunt, 
because he's a charisma vacuum who has a terrible record on the NHS. He's deeply unpopular. He's probably not going to be supported by most Tory activists anyway, and he's uh, he's in favour of remaining. But um, the question for us, uh, for the left, is will the people, uh, the Tory MPs who say never Boris, will they hold the line? Because if they don't hold the line, then you've got uh, a very intelligent sociopath in number 10 Downing Street who's talking about leaving without a deal, who I think is probably just ruthless enough to actually do that and then call a general election immediately after and win on that basis, um, which is entirely possible. And the other thing about Boris is that I mean, people who know him from above, uh, abroad might see him as a bit of a shambolic figure, you know, someone who has lots of gaffes. A muppet. Uh, yeah, uh, who says, you know, casually racist things while he's on foreign junkets, uh, all that sort of stuff. But the thing about him is that um, he is very good at concealing a very hard um, political agenda. I mean, he is a hard-bitten Thatcherite to the core. That's where he comes from. Um, and if you read his t- autographs for the, uh, sorry, articles for the Telegraph, the Spectator, you find uh, that that's where he uh, conventionally is. But he's been very good at you know building up a television pers- personality, and he started doing that on the comedy panel shows like uh, Have I Got News for You, which is a sort of uh, surprisingly popular uh, British satire show uh, where he was the clown, somebody who was made fun of, but he built up a certain cachet because of that. And while he was mayor of London, he posed as a bit of a slightly socially conscious green mayor. He rode to uh, work on his bike every day. You know, uh, he tried to take credit for nationalizing, renationalizing the uh, tube and so on, so that um, he didn't lose London voters because London voters tend to be a bit more to the left than the general population. But now that he's going for the sort of Tory leadership, he's anchored himself to the hard right. So he is somebody who is very strategic, very cunning, and very good at presentation. He's possibly um, better than, you know, uh, or smarter than, you know, Nigel Farage. And Nigel Farage has shown us that he's a very dangerous and savvy opponent. So of the the Tory leadership candidates, he's the one who I think Jeremy Corbyn would be facing a very dangerous and difficult opponent in. And so that's what I would be worried about. That said, the Conservative Party is in historic meltdown. Um, so I'll just finish on this point. Um, since uh, the early 1990s, the Conservative Party has been splitting apart on the issue of Europe. Now, this is not just a narrow a sort of technical uh, doctrinal issue. This is an issue of class. Specifically, you're talking about, on the one hand, the kinds of lower middle class, small business owners who don't like all these rules and regulations coming from Brussels. And they think it's some sort of pinko plot, the EU SSR, you know, with its own ruble trying to take over (laughs) British common sense, you know, all the rest of it. And then you've got the Barrow Boys and the City Spivs and the sort of the hyper globalists, the people who want to be able to trade all over the world, uh, uh, you know, and they have this ideology of Britain as a global trader. So you've got the little England and then you've got the global trader. And that sort of milieu that's been pushing uh, this. And ever since the end of the Cold War, they've had no incentive whatsoever to line up behind European unity. They have had uh, no incentive to line up behind 
you know, conservative unity ever since the, at least the, you know, the labor movement, as it were, uh, was crushed uh, and defeated into oblivion by the, the Thatcher administration. And so they have felt at liberty to pull apart from the traditional big business base of the uh, of the Conservative Party. And so what we're seeing now is very clear. Boris Johnson made it clear when, in a speech, he said, fuck business, because he was talking about Brexit. He was saying, look, if business doesn't like Brexit, fuck business. That's something that no Tory leadership candidate has ever said, right? Um, that is something that is u- uniquely new, and he can see where the energy is coming from. So the danger here is that the Tory party may split apart, but it might become electorally potent again in a way that uh, is actually very, very dangerous, and in, in exactly the, the way that Trump made the Republicans electorally viable by becoming essentially a middle-class protest party. Um, and, um, you know, you'll find that business will... Turned out ultimately that Trump has only mostly rhetorically broken with corporate America rather than substantively. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I mean that, um, you know, in terms of his policies and his ideas on immigration and so on, I think the majority of employers don't really want that. They're not in favor of that. Um, They need some uh, sort of uh, uh, movement of labor. They need NAFTA. They wanted the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It cost them hundreds of billions of dollars when he uh, cancelled it, you know, in terms of potential turnover and trade. So I think that although he has offered business quite a lot in terms of, uh, you know, the traditional Republican tax cut and all the rest of it. Deregulation. Yeah, deregulation. They kind of wanted it to be a Democrat doing that stuff um, rather than to have this kind of guy who they don't really trust. So that's what I'm talking about when I say it's become kind of a middle class protest party. Um, because it's been captured by, you know, not the traditional funding cartels who would have, you know, put Jeb Bush in power if they had the opportunity, but by sort of Tea Party types. Um, uh, that's that's my uh, surmisal from afar anyway. And at any rate, that's what I think is the danger with the Conservative Party. So opportunities for the Labour Party, certainly the meltdown of the uh, Conservative Party does present opportunities for Labour, but it also presents some very toxic dangers. And if the Brexit Party becomes the main opportunity position, then I think we may be in some trouble. Maya, parting shot on these heightening contradictions? I mean, I think that it, it, like, we are very focused on Brexit and very focused on what is going to happen with Brexit. And we don't know, we don't know what is going to unfold over the next few months. We can make predictions, but actually in terms of what will happen, depending on who is the next Conservative leader. And I think there is potentially going to be space for Labour if they find a definitive Brexit position that is going to be difficult. I think there will be space for them to maybe begin to carve out a clearer message and hopefully try to pivot at times back to some of those policies that are incredibly important but are being overshadowed, those economic policies that are so desperately needed in Britain. I think that they will continue to try and put that at the centre of their argument and there may be cut through depending on when a general election is and that is one of the the potential hopes for us is we don't know when a general election is going to be and it could be that when the next general election does come around that Labour is able to carve out that very clear at least economic message and the Conservatives on that front still have very 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 little it's hard to see how any of those candidates are going to come up with a particularly um, impressive agenda and that does matter, I think, when people's living standards have fallen to such a huge extent and we are living in a country now that is essentially 
children are going to school where with teachers who can't do their jobs, they're going to school hungry, people are unable to pay their bills. There is a real crisis in Britain on so many different levels. And I think that Labour does still speak to that. It is just about whether they can have cut through with that message is what will decide what happens when, whenever the next general election is. Well, Maya Goodfellow, Richard Seymour, and Grace Blakely, who departed about 45 minutes ago, thank you all very much. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Grace Blakely is an economics commentator at the New Statesman, the author of Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, out later this year from Repeater Books, and a Labour Party National Policy Forum representative from London. Maya Goodfellow is a writer and the author of Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, out later this year from Verso. Richard Seymour is an editor of Salvage Magazine and, most recently, the author of The Twittering Machine, forthcoming this year from the Indigo Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that all forms of the state have democracy for their truth and for that reason are false to the extent that they are not democracy. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually once or twice, but this week probably four times. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Fia Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And please make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. <laughs>